You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So if you are a guest with us, once again, welcome. And you may not know that we have been through, been going through a study on the Gospel of Luke. And this has been a multi-month Sunday. We're going beginning to end like we normally do with the books of the Bible that we study together. And we're about two-thirds through now. We come today to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. So if you have a tablet or a phone or some kind of electronic device that you have a Bible on and want to get that out, go ahead and get there. If you're old school like me and you still use a hardcover Bible, then go ahead and turn, woo-woo, there's three of us in the room. Um, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 20, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Some things have happened in these last couple of weeks for me that this passage we're going to look at today has spoken really powerfully to, and I, I wasn't expecting it to. And I debated with, and even asked one of my daughters her opinion about, do I share this to start the sermon because it's kind of heavy and difficult and she said yeah it's real life and this is this is real life but it's been a tough two weeks for me on on one front in particular because some things have happened that have been very disappointing and very discouraging to me to be quite honest with you and they both involve two people who I have history with one the first is really a leader of leaders he's worked with pastors and leadership teams um, at churches he really has an international scope to his ministry he's just a very influential, very impactful man of God. But this last week, um, there was an allegation that was brought to his elder team because he is the lead pastor slash senior pastor of another church in another part of town here, that he was having an affair. And so the elders did what they absolutely needed to do and had to do. They confronted him with that, and he owned it and said, yeah, I have been having an affair. In fact, I was having an affair prior to this one. And so the elders and leadership team did what they had to do, and they removed him as the lead pastor and an elder of, of that church. And that is, that's very personally painful to me because this man has had tremendous influence on my life. A lot of, of how I preach and what I've learned with preaching has come from him. And that one's been a tough one for me to do business with. But right on the heels of that, just a number of days after, I heard about another friend who serves um, or did serve, rather, at my previous church. And he kind of held a role that was a conglomeration of the roles we have here at Grace. Um, Dave Learwick is our administrator, and he is a wonderful administrator. And he does that for us. And another Dave, Dave Pritchard, is our facility guy here at Grace, and he does a wonderful job with that. The position my friend served in was kind of a, a conglomeration of those, those two roles with some additional responsibilities. And the way his role was configured, it allowed him to have eventually unrestricted access to the finances and resources of the church. And it just came out this last week that it's been determined that over the last seven years, he's embezzled almost $500,000 from that church. And again, this is someone who I've had a lot of history with, um, long friendship with. We haven't connected in a lot of years because I'm here and he's there, but feel very connected to him nonetheless and very disappointed once again. And honestly, the first place my mind goes when I hear stories like that is there by the grace of God go I. The human heart is capable of anything. And uh, 
I don't put myself above being tempted by any type of brokenness like that. And so we deliberately as a leadership use that as an opportunity to once again look each other in the eye and call each other to accountability and trust and authenticity. We have a number of checks and balances here as a leadership, which I'm grateful for. But also to reiterate once again, this is a safe place. If you're started down that road, do not hide that. Do not keep that to yourself. We need to talk about that. Bring us in on the early part of the journey, not when it's become wreckage at the very end. And so we talked about these things. But in the process of that, this very passage we're going to look at here today spoke to me as well, and it has helped me process some of this and understand some of this for my own life. And I hope it blesses you in a similar way. But as you read this passage, you wouldn't expect it. To, to work that way because this is really a message of judgment. And yet in this message of judgment is a profound message of hope because at this point in the journey, Jesus has now come to Jerusalem. He's been on a long journey to Jerusalem that Luke has been very careful to document for us, but now he actually enters Jerusalem and he comes into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the, the foal of a donkey, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, particularly in Zechariah, that say when the Messiah comes, he will come just like this. For those who are looking, unmistakable, Jesus' identity. So he comes into Jerusalem this way. And then he goes to the temple and he basically cleans up the temple. There's these money changers and all this stuff that's going on in a part of the temple that's supposed to be a place of worship. And so he makes a whip out of cords and drives them out and um, does all this stuff. And the religious leadership has been growing more and more resentful and offended by what Jesus has said and done, by who he declares himself to be and by what he's doing. And so now they're openly questioning his authority. And that's what's happening in the passage today. They're basically calling him out. And so he's going to assert his authority and assert his identity, and then he's gonna tell this story to illustrate what he's just said. And it's that story that I think speaks so powerfully to all of us. So. In your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 20. I'm gonna put it up on the screens behind me here. And let me read this to you. So one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism... Was it from heaven or of human origin? And he's referring to John the Baptist. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now here comes our story. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. So he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus looked directly at them and said, Then what is the meaning of what is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Now, some very necessary background we need to have to understand this parable. How did the religious leaders know that by telling this story, Jesus was talking about them? Because he was reaching back into their history. And many of us don't have the Old Testament frame of reference that they would have. Because you see, all throughout the Old Testament, in places like Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah chapter 5, it talks about the nation of Israel like a vineyard. And in particular, in that Isaiah passage, it says this, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. They are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So with that in mind, this is how we can understand this parable, this story. The owner of the vineyard, God. The vineyard, the nation of Israel. The tenants, the religious leaders, really representing the nation. The servants, all the Old Testament prophets that God sent to his people. And the heir or the son, Jesus. So let's now begin to work our way through this story. So it describes this owner who rents a vineyard to some farmers. This is called sharecropping. Very common, it's practiced in a lot of cultures in the world, and basically, the owner of the land, or a land, will rent that to some folks, who then will give him a portion of what's grown there, a portion of the profits, so to speak, his cut, because he's the owner. It's something that's still widely practiced today. So, with that in mind, what is the obligation of the tenants, or the farmers? It's to work the land. Do they own the land? No, the owner does. So who is the one who assumes the risk, assumes the liability, and is ultimately responsible for the land? Well, it's the owner. But the tenants are there to tend it by his word or his instructions and for ultimately his profit. So here we go. What happens in this story? Who is acting like the owners? The tenants. And are they thinking and acting clearly and rationally, and reasonably? And the answer, no. What do they do? The owner rightfully sends a servant to them to get a share of the profits. He comes looking for fruit, literally, and they beat him up, and they send him away empty-handed. Tremendously offensive in that culture. Yet the owner tries again, sends another servant, and this time it goes from bad to worse. Not only do they beat him up and send him away empty-handed, it says they shamed him. And once again, in an honor-shame culture in the first century, that is almost unbelievable. We don't know what they did to shame him, but things are getting worse. Oh, not really. They're actually going to get worse than that. So the owner sends a third servant, and this time they beat him and send him away empty-handed, but they also wound him. 
So you would think at this point the owner's had enough. And what does the owner do? He raises the bar even higher. Now he's going to send his son to try to reason with them. And what do they do? This is the heir. Let's kill him. So we get the inheritance. Because legally, in that culture, if you did not have a biological heir, your land would then pass to the tenants. But is any owner in any right mind going to let these people have the inheritance? And the answer, of course not. But you begin to see the irrationality of what is happening here. But there's a deeper deeper symbolism here. Who is this really referencing that gets killed? Jesus, who is on his way to Jerusalem to his death and crucifixion. And this is a direct reference to the nation of Israel. You see, this is a part of the story that's us. Because this was God's plan all along. If we reach back hundreds, thousands of years to the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, the promise God made to Abraham, he said that all people would eventually be blessed through him. And we know that from passages like Revelation chapter 7, that's people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation represented in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel for all people. This is the kingdom of God for all people. This was God's plan all along. But it's also an act of judgment on the nation of Israel. So this is our story. But then Jesus goes and reaches back into the Old Testament once again and he pulls this verse out of Psalm 118 and he defines it and says, this is what it means. This is talking about me. And just so we're on the same page, what is a cornerstone? And many of you know what this is, but a cornerstone, by way of reminder, is really the foundation stone, the plumb line stone that you align all the other foundation stones by. That's the cornerstone. It makes the corner. And understand, Jesus is in Jerusalem and in the temple as he's saying this. He's either literally in the temple or he's standing next to it. When I was in Israel two years ago, this is what's left of the temple from Jesus' time. These stones are over 2,000 years old. They are the original foundation stones of the very temple that Jesus stood in and taught in. And so this is a picture of a man at what's known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall of the temple who's praying. And I took this picture with my phone, but notice how huge those stones are next to that man. Several tons. And this is a pulled back picture of what remains of the original wall of the temple. Look at those foundation stones. They're, they're huge. What, what's, what's the point here? Well, Jesus is saying, right, one of these stones falls on you, it's not gonna be a good day for you. You're gonna get crushed. And if you fall from any type of height onto a stone this big, it's not gonna work out so well for you. This is a very clear message of judgment. This has echoes of Luke chapter 13 where we looked at that story of the Tower of Siloam falling on those quote-unquote innocent people. We don't know the details of it. We just know they died. And Jesus pointed to that and said, yep, repent or perish. It's, it's a message of judgment. 
But this isn't the only place that it's our story, this promise to include all people in God's kingdom. This is our story in another way. Because the problem that Jesus is speaking to here with the human heart is a historic problem. And it's where all of us start out. And it actually takes us all the way back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Which this fall, when we start our Genesis series, we've never gone through Genesis here as a church family. I'm so excited about that. It's going to be epic. We'll get more into that when we get closer to it. But think with me back to the book of beginnings, book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God creates. Genesis chapter 2, God creates man. And he tells Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God creates Eve. And by Genesis chapter 3, Eve has either been told by God and it's not recorded for us in God's word, or Adam has told her directly, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because she, we knew, she knew that she wasn't supposed to. Satan comes, tempts her, and they do. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But let's think about this for a minute. Whose garden was that? God's. Who was the owner? God was. And what did God tell Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And by the way, subdue does not mean pummel it into oblivion. Subdue means to harness the creative potential of it. Use it to its fullest. Make it flourish. They were the tenants. And he was the owner. And what happened? The roles got reversed when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they said, yeah, no, we're the owners. We don't need to be told what to do. We'll figure that out for ourselves. God said not to eat from that tree. Well, did he really mean it? And there was this break in trust. They did not trust what God told them to do. I resonate with that. Because there's a part of me that does not like to be told what to do. There's a part of me that thinks I know what is better. And one of the illustrations from my own life that, that makes me remember this is um, what a friend did. In middle school, I played baseball with a group of guys for a number of years. And in the eighth grade, our shortstop was a guy by the name of Pat. And he wasn't our shortstop just because he was short, although he was. He was a really good athlete, and he was a good shortstop. And Pat, by his own admission at times, and certainly by his parents' admission, was a handful. He gave his parents a run for their money. And his dad explicitly told him, Pat, despite the fact that you're in eighth grade and you think you're ready to drive, you're not. I'm not going to ever let you drive my four-wheel drive like you keep asking me to let you do. Well, Pat decided that wasn't good enough, so one night as his parents were sleeping and he had a buddy over for a sleepover, they decided to take the four-wheel drive out that night. And so Pat gets into this four-wheel drive, drops in the four-wheel drive, and what do you do when you have a four-wheel drive? You use the four-wheel drive. So all over our neighborhood, because I live near him, they were jumping curbs and doing all sorts of stuff, but somehow they overestimated the clearance of the four-wheel drive, and they jumped over something. I don't know what it was, and actually they didn't jump over it. They drove over it, and it dropped the drive shaft. Somehow they managed to get it back home. Pat saw a car coming, saw headlights coming, and remember, this is really late at night, thought it was a police car, panicked. It wasn't a police car, but he panicked anyway, hit the accelerator and put the truck through the garage. Why did he do that? Why did he take that four-wheel drive out? 
in part because his dad told him not to. And he decided he would do it anyway. And here's this guy who can barely see over the steering wheel of this four-wheel drive who thinks he's got it all figured out. I can be like that. And so can you. In fact, that's where we all start apart from Jesus. Because we resist and resent this idea that we are not the owners of our lives. We don't like someone telling us what to do or perceiving someone's telling us what to do. So we'll just figure out on our our own. Because we have to understand that sin, that brokenness, is more than just what we do or don't do. It is the bent and inclination of our hearts. And so when you begin to think that you are the owner of your life, then you become self-righteous. And life becomes all about your rights. And you become entitled. And it leads to being smug and selfish with your life. We think we're doing just fine, thank you very much, to control our lives on our terms, our way, right away. And it doesn't work like that. You see, your intelligence, my creativity, your health, my stuff, your sexuality, all these things are gifts from God. They are not yours. They belong to God. But sometimes we forget that. And we start acting like we're the owners instead of the servants, instead of the tenants of what he's entrusted to us. And so God will do what he did in this story. And he will send messengers into our lives to call us back to right relationship with him or to call, him, call us to repentance. I mean, think about this reasonably with me for a moment. Isn't life itself a messenger? This broken world that we live in? We think we can control it and manage it and plan it and prioritize it and set goals for it and we do all that stuff and it never turns out the way we think it will. Something's always interrupting our plans. Something's always challenging our priorities. Something's always frustrating our goals. Life itself can be a messenger, but sometimes God allows or sends providential messengers. A close call. A crisis. A frustration. A disappointment. An unfilled longing. To remind us that we are not in control of our lives. With permission... I want to tell you about a phone conversation I had last week with with one of our own. His name's Tim Clark. He was recently diagnosed with cancer. He calls Grace home here for many years. But anyway, Tim had this enormous tumor underneath his arm right here in his chest cavity. And he was in the hospital last week because they had to operate on it to remove it, and they didn't get all of it. They couldn't. Too intertwined with nerves and muscle tissue and some other stuff. So he's got a portion of that that's still there and it's going to necessitate chemotherapy for further treatment. And he said, as we were talking together on the phone last week, as he's talking to me from the hospital bed, he said, you know, Jay, do I wish I would have been completely miraculously healed? Absolutely. Still pray for that, still ask for that. Do I wish that the surgeon would have been able to get it? Absolutely. Still pray for that and, and wish that would have happened. But he said, here's the bottom line. God continues to teach me that life is all about relationship. Relationship with him and relationship with other people. And I've come to the realization that if my cancer helps me know God better, then that's all that matters. Wow. I thought two things. Number one, can you disciple me? 
can you help me understand that? And number two, that's someone who gets it. You're not the owner of their life. But here is another reality that is intrinsic and explicit in this passage, and that's this, that God's grace always precedes his judgment. Think about this historically with me for a minute. How many opportunities did the nation of Israel have to return to right relationship with God? Thousands of years worth. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, calling them to repentance, calling them to right relationship, reminding them they were not the owners of their lives, but the stewards of what God had entrusted to them and given to them. And time after time, they said, no, 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 no. Even in this story, the owner of the vineyard doesn't just stop at one servant. He sends another. He sends another. Finally, he raises the ante, and he sends his own son. Did he have to do that? No. He was under no obligation to do that, but he did that anyway. I challenge you, anytime you see God's judgment in Scripture, it's always preceded by a long, long, long season of grace. Multiple opportunities. Multiple opportunities, and we see that in the story today. Which brings us to me and you, and to my friends who I started this sermon with, telling you about what's happened in their lives the last couple weeks. Assumably, God sent them multiple messengers in their journey. And systematically, somehow, they ignored those messengers. They cut them out of their lives. They may have even beat them up and shamed them, like in our story today. I I don't know. I'm not close enough to know all the details, but this is what I do know. There were multiple opportunities for them to stop living like owners and return to being servants of the one true God, and they chose not to over and over and over again. So how are you responding to the messengers God has put in your life? Are you listening? Have you so built your life that no one can speak truth into your life? No one has a license to lovingly, necessarily, appropriately confront you with the truth. Or whenever someone tries, you belittle them, you blow them off, you even shame them and make it their problem. Because the reality is, this is a God who does not want to harm us. He wants to heal us. Just like in our story that we looked at last week with the blind man. He comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Because he was testing his heart. Another way to say that is, do you want to get well? Or do you want to continue to be sick? And how well is that working out for you? That's what God does again and again as he comes to us and he offers us a way out. God's grace is not a license for you and me to sin and be selfish and celebrate our brokenness. God's grace is is the escape from that brokenness. And it starts and ends with the last messenger. Who is the last messenger in this story? It's Jesus. And to enter his kingdom, as we've seen over and over again, you gotta humble yourself. 
you got to realize and accept you are not the owner of your life. He is. And by the way, his terms are way better than yours. His conditions are way, way better than what you'll settle for if you live life apart from him. But understand, if you reject the final messenger, there is no more hope to you, for you. Jesus is the final messenger. And if you reject him, that's it. And he will come to you again and again and again and again. But at some point, he's going to stop coming. And he's going to give you exactly what you say you want. And that is to make life all about you. And you don't have to live like that. And thankfully, neither do I. I was reading through Hebrews this last week, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verse thing, verse 3, understand, this is speaking to Jesus' followers. Hebrews was written to Jesus' followers. It says, how can we escape God's judgment, his reasonable, rightful judgment, if we ignore such a great salvation? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, can we cut to the heart of this? What if you don't feel like making God the owner of your life? What if it feels like whatever he's asking you to do with what it means to follow him and love him is unreasonable or makes no sense or you just, quite frankly, don't feel like doing it? What should our motivation be? This is a true story that I'd like to read to you. This is about King Hussein, who was the ruler of Jordan for about 30 years. He passed away in 1999. This is a true story. One night in the early 1980s, the king was informed by his security police that a group of about 75 Jordanian army officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of his kingdom. The security officers requested permission to surround the barracks and arrest the plotters. The king said no and instead said, bring me a small helicopter. A helicopter was brought. The king climbed in with the pilot and he himself flew to the barracks and landed on its flat roof. And then the king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, you fly away at once without me. Unarmed, the king appeared in the room where the plotters were meeting and quietly said to them, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow my government, take over the country, and to install your own military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into a civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people are going to die. Yet there is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and then proceed. Because if you do that, only one man then will die. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one person, rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and feet and to pledge loyalty to him for the rest of their lives. True story. And so is the story here this morning. Although there's a key difference between what I just read to you and what we looked at here this morning, and it's this. We killed the last messenger. It was your brokenness and your sin and mine that put Jesus on that cross. And he accepted that and took that on himself 
in order to free us from a life of brokenness. He sacrificed himself so that we could live. Why would we pledge our loyalty to a God like that? How could you not pledge your loyalty to a God like that? A God who is willing to die on your behalf and mine in order to bless you and free you from a life of selfishness and self-focus and sin, but instead to call you and empower you to live a life that is blessed, that has joy, that has peace, and that has a future, a life now and a life someday eternally with him. The real question here this morning is this, how will you respond to the last messenger? And I know that in a gathering this size, there are a number of you, because you're human just like me, you are doing battle with this. You are wrestling with it. You know there are portions of your life where you are acting like an owner and not a servant. And it is not too late to turn from those. That is the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it is never too late when he comes to you and calls you to repentance to respond So will you? Will you believe him and trust him? Will you make him your king? Will you make him the cornerstone of your life? We're gonna sing about that right now as the worship team comes. But this is your time. There's communion off to the sides. Remind yourself of what he's done for you. Do business with him. Do not let this opportunity go by. Do not say no to the last messenger who once again comes to you and says, will you trust me? Will you believe me? Let me pray his blessing over you. Jesus, thank you that your words are words of hope. Thank you that you give us multiple opportunities to turn back to you. You are so patient, so gracious, so merciful with us. When you judge, it is because you have given us chance after chance after chance to turn back to you. Would we not squander that chance once again here this morning, would we trust you and believe you for what you say? Would we make you the cornerstone of our life? Lord, forgive us for acting like owners when instead we are your servants. Help us to believe that and live that through the power of the Holy Spirit and by Jesus' name, by your name, amen. I love that song. It's such pure, unapologetic, unadulterated worship of the one true God. It's just, it's awesome. And I love to worship with you. And part of worship is that ongoing process of realigning our hearts with God's. This is a safe place to do that. You know, one of the unfortunate things that I hear sometimes when I'm talking to folks is that they think somehow they've got to clean themselves up in order to come to church. And just the opposite of true is true. We come to church a mess, and God is the one who cleans us up. It is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. God is constantly calling us back to right relationship with Him. And the thing with sin and brokenness is that it grows in the dark. Those voices that are not from the Holy Spirit that tell you no one else can relate to this, you're the only one struggling with this, what if people found out, no one can ever know, that is not the Holy Spirit in your life. That's someone else who wants to keep you trapped in your sin and brokenness and you don't have to stay there. There is freedom and hope and joy and peace and fulfillment 
in Jesus. And this is where you find him, is in a community of Jesus followers like this. We're not perfect. That's why we're here. And we do life together. So please, do not ignore God's word in your life. Or to put it another way, do not ignore the last messenger who is coming to you. And I'm not talking about me. Who is coming to you and asking you if you will trust him and stop being the owner of your life and let him bless you with the very life that you're looking for in all the wrong ways and places. You don't have to live like that. So don't leave here that way. We have prayer teams who will step out here to pray with you. They are safe people. I trust them. You can trust them. Come talk to me. Talk with the person who brought you. But don't miss out on what God has for you. And I want to pray that blessing over you right now. Jesus, I thank you that you are the God who comes seeking us despite our brokenness. All the times we ignore you, we silence you, we walk away from you, and yet still you pursue us. So God, would we respond to the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives? Lord, would you call us back to right relationship with you? Lord, would you help us to trust you and to believe you for what you promise us? We love you, Lord, truly. And as we go from here, we recommit ourselves to follow you with every part of our lives. And we thank you for this time we've had together here. In Jesus' name, in your name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So go and live for him. And we hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.